Good afternoon, everyone. Nothing. No response. Good afternoon, everybody. Okay, that's good. See, how are we going to have trivia night if nobody speaks up? Sam Mike are going to be speaking to quiet people. So I'll warm you up right now. Um, the title for uh, this afternoon's message is actually, um, if you can switch to the next slide, I changed the title um, about two days ago. Uh, but it's called God Does Not Trust Everyone. And uh, I figured if somebody is kind of scrolling through the, the sermons on, on the internet, that might be a little bit more eye-catching. So it's the same concept. I just changed a few words around. Okay, I changed all the words around. But anyway, um, this afternoon we're going to be looking through John chapter 6. And so if you have your Bibles, I'll invite you to uh, flick through your Bibles um, in John chapter 6 while, uh, while I just kind of narrate the story with you. Okay, so this the, the topic for this afternoon is on trust, and um, I kind of wanted to start out by asking the generic cliche question, what does it mean to trust? And I looked through a few different articles online. If you type in trust on Google, you'll get uh, a handful of different articles from the Harvard Business Review or whether it be Forbes magazine. And basically, these popular magazines kind of define trust in this way. If you want to build trust with uh with clientele, uh, basically the Harvard Business Review would say um, the most simple way to do this is to build a perception of similarity, a perception of similarity. Um, the Harvard Business Review would say uh, create um, a perception of similarity. And basically um, they're saying uh, – I'm sure you've heard of that famous uh, Christmas story. I think it was in the year uh, 1914, World War One in Belgium. Um, the British are fighting the Germans, and back then they would fight with trench warfare, and so they would dig these um, trenches along one side, and then the other side would build a trench on the other side, and they would kind of shoot at each other basically until one group got the courage to hop out of their trenches and run towards the other people who are in their trenches, and that's basically how they fought. Um, so – uh, Christmas Eve, uh, the Germans begin to sing Christmas carols, and it's nighttime, and so they've got these uh, little um, candles, and they're so the German soldiers are using the candles to read these uh, these hymnals, and they're singing Christmas songs. And the British soldiers they hear what's going on in the other trenches, and they decide, oh, we're gonna we're gonna sing too, and so they start singing along in the English language. And what happens is. I don't know which side decided to do this first, but one side hopped out of the trenches and started walking toward the middle of the battlefield. And then the other side thought, oh, well, they're going out to the middle of the battlefield. Let's go join them. And so they kind of went to the middle of the battlefield and they start sharing um, pictures of their families and they start singing these Christmas songs together. And so for one brief moment, the fighting in World War One stops. And then the very next day, they went back to killing each other, which is kind of interesting. But there was almost this, a lot of psychologists wonder what inspired one group to hop out of the trench and meet the other group. And there was this, this idea of the perception of similarity. Um, so they tried to um, replicate this in, in, a, in a controlled environment. And what they decided to do was they would have a control group and then uh, they would have some actors that would help facilitate uh, this theory. And so what they would do is there are two groups. One group um, is given a specific recording that they're supposed to listen to, and it's a it's a tapping sound. It's a tapping pattern that's repeated over and over and over again. And um, the next group is given a different recording of a different uh, tapping pattern. And so what happens is uh, they have this actor in the room. There's this glass. 
both actor and the participant is wearing the recording. And with one group, they're given the same pattern as the actor. And what they're told is tap on the glass. And so the actor taps on the glass and the participant taps on the glass. And so one group, they are matching the pattern of the actor. The second group, they don't match the pattern of the actor. And what happens is they're told, okay, after the experiment is done, you are welcome to leave. Now, what the participants don't know is that the actor is given this difficult um, uh, puzzle. And basically, the participant is not forced to be a part of the puzzle solving at all. And what they would do is they would try and figure out how many people, if the actor asks them, will you help me, will help the actor. And so, as you can guess, the people who had a different tapping pattern, um, 18% of them ended up helping the actor. And then for those that were given the same pattern as the actor, 50% of them actually ended up helping the uh, actor. And so they're saying just having that one brief moment of similarity with that person, having the same pattern tapping on the glass would inspire them to actually help another person. And so they're saying perhaps trust is built on this perception of similarity. Uh, if you look at Forbes magazine, they would just say, look, trust is built on great service, consistency, transparency. And so as I was reading through the story in John chapter 6, the story is really about Jesus asking uh, people that were following him to trust him, to believe in him. And what um, I want to do is from the Bible to kind of define what trust is about uh, from the perspective of, of Scripture. And so if you turn, yeah, I guess you're already there, I have to go there, John chapter 6. The opening verse that I want to look at is found in verse 29. And if you look at John chapter 6, verse 29, Jesus is kind of um, in the midst of this discourse, and he gets to uh, the punchline of his discourse. And he says, uh, he answered and said to them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him, who sent, uh, whom he sent. And so basically he's saying, believe in me. And my question is, what does it mean to believe in Jesus? I think a lot of times people say, do you believe in Jesus? Or you should believe in Jesus. Or it's so great to believe in Jesus. And oftentimes I wonder, what does that really mean? Now, I went to the concordance, and uh, basically the word believe is uh, pisteo, and then the root word is uh, pistis. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. But basically there are two major definitions of uh, this word pisteo. One is a matter of truth. In order, in other words, uh, when somebody says you need to stand up for your faith, stand up for what you believe in, there's this context of believing truth or standing for truth. Uh, the second definition is a definition of trust. And uh, it's basically learning how to trust somebody who is faithful. And so, um, yeah, you have this these two kind of opposing almost ideas of uh, truth and trust. And that's kind of what belief is, kind of, the word belief kind of encapsulates these two concepts. And so we're going to see how this word is used uh, through different portions of scripture. So we'll start by introducing uh, the first uh, story of how Jesus tries to build trust um, with his believers. And in chapter 6, there are two stories that lead up to his discourse of trust. The first instance is the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000. And this is a pretty famous uh, Bible story. Jesus breaks the bread, and there's only five loaves and two fishes, five loaves of bread and two fishes, and basically it feeds uh, 5,000 men. We have no idea how many women and children there are, but you can kind of imagine there's a lot of, there are a lot of people there. 
The second story of Jesus building trust is Jesus walking on water and calming the storm. And so we're going to be looking at these two verses. Now, if you want to skim from John chapter 6, verses 1 to 15, um, I'm just going to briefly uh, kind of go over the events of the story. I guess I, I already have, but... um as you know, Jesus feeds the 5,000, and he does this for two reasons. And if you look in the story, um, look at verse 5. It says, Then Jesus lifted his eyes, and seeing a great multitude towards him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread that these may eat? Now, Jesus is looking at these multitudes of people. They've left their homes. They're in this wilderness or this kind of desert, and basically there's no place to get food. And if... Um, if you look at some background studies as to uh, the eco- economic state of uh, Judah during that time, they're actually very, very poor because the Romans are ruling over the Jews and they basically, um, they are not able to fend for themselves. Oftentimes farmers have to give up their land because uh, they have to pay high taxes and they end up losing their land and they end up basically becoming uh, farmers that have to pay rent on the land that they've already owned and lost and they're just, they're very poor. And so you also have a fishing community that's around that area, and they're kind of, they've resorted to fishing and um, farming. And so Jesus sees these people, they're hungry, they're poor, and uh, if you look through a different uh, account of this, basically it says that Jesus had compassion upon these people. Um, now this story, just backing up a little bit, this story is very important because, or unique, because it's one of the few stories that are in all four Gospels. And so... Um, Oftentimes you see John deviating from the other three Gospels. And in this one case, he thinks this is really important. And so, hence the stories in this account. So, Jesus sees these people. He has compassion on them. And basically, he wants to show them, I care for you. I know you're hungry. You've left your homes. You've come out to this wilderness, this desert place. I want to make sure that you're fed. So, that's reason number one. Reason number two as to why Jesus performs this miracle, and we've just read the introduction to it, Jesus is speaking to whom as he asks this question? Let's make sure everyone's on the same page. Yes, Philip. So Jesus is speaking to Philip, and notice the text answers why he speaks to Philip. In verse 7, Philip answers him, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, that every one of them may have a little. In other words, that's just the equivalent of about eight months' wages. So Philip sees all these people, and he's saying eight months' worth of pay would not take care of the food that's needed to feed these people. In verse 8, um, or excuse me, verse 6, Jesus asks Philip because he knows that Philip is going to respond in this way. And so Philip is an individual who is not used to seeing Jesus perform miracles, and he almost has his own doubts. And so on one hand, Jesus has compassion for the multitude, and on the other hand, Jesus wants to test Philip. And he almost wants to show Philip um, the extent of his power, really. Now, at the end of this miracle... Jesus has fed the 5,000, he has multiplied the food, and if you look at verse 14 and 15, notice how the people respond. It says, Then those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, said, 
this is truly the prophet who has come into the world. And so they're so excited that Jesus has performed this miracle. In verse 15, it says, Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to the mountain by himself alone. Now picture the scene. 5,000 people have just been fed by five loaves of bread and two fishes. They're so excited, and they want to kind of force Jesus to be king. And Jesus separates himself from the people and basically goes to the mountains. It's such a random story. And basically, if you look at verse 4, it puts this story into context. Verse 4 says that it is the Passover feast. And if you think about the first instance that the Passover um, comes up in the Bible, it's a time when Israel or the Jews are in slavery. And they've been enslaved for over 400 years. And what happens is they're stuck in the land of Egypt, they're enslaved, and God basically brings about these plagues uh, to Egypt and causes the current government to say, okay, Israel, you need to leave now. And so... Israel, or God commands Israel to uh, basically celebrate this feast called the Passover. And there are many meanings behind the Passover feast, but one meaning that's very prevalent in the Passover is that it's supposed to be a festival that's supposed to remind them of freedom, a festival that's supposed to remind them of liberation. And so what's happening right now is the Roman Empire has basically colonized um the Jewish, uh, the Jewish nation. And each time Passover comes around, they're reminded of this time when God has delivered them. They're reminded of this time of liberation. And so whenever they go to the temple to worship, they're thinking, freedom, freedom, freedom. And so the Romans actually, they were quite uncomfortable with this festival because they knew the meaning behind it. And so here, the Passover is about to take place and Jesus performs this miracle and the Jews are completely reminded of when God has freed Israel from Egypt and how God provided for 40 years bread that comes from heaven. And here, they see Jesus and he multiplies this bread and there is no limit to how much food this guy can produce and they think, this guy is going to liberate us. There's this prophecy that's given in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15. It says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brothers, him you will hear. And so in Deuteronomy, Moses, the leader of Israel at that time, he gives this prophecy. There's going to be a time when there's a prophet like me who's going to do my work and you're going to hear him. And so they're looking for this person who's going to liberate them. Now, on one hand, when they see Jesus perform this miracle, they're right. He is the liberator. But on the other hand, they're wrong because he's not going to liberate them in the way that they want him to. They expect Jesus to free them from the oppression of the Romans when Jesus wants to liberate them from sin. So, there's this natural human tendency Whenever we see or whenever people see the miraculous working of God, uh, there's a specific uh, theological significance or a teaching about God that God wants to communicate to people when he performs a miracle. But the tendency is to kind of make that miracle fit the needs of the individual. And if you think about uh, history, there have been many times where people look at the 
uh, miss the significance of God and the purpose of God, and they kind of try to capitalize on the power of God. And I'll give a couple examples. Um, I'm curious, how many of you are familiar with the term manifest destiny? Anybody? All right. So manifest destiny was kind of like a slogan that the Americans used. And grant, okay, so, yeah. So it's the slogan that the Americans used to kind of show that it was America's destiny to uh, conquer America from sh- uh, from sea to shining sea, and that that phrase is kind of uh, quite popular in American uh, in old American songs. And so, basically, in the newspapers, they would uh, put this slogan, "Manifest Destiny." It's our destiny that we should go and explore the rest of America and conquer America and have the rest of America for us because it's. Uh, God wants us to have this. And so each time there's a war, each time they want people to be explorers, uh, they use this slogan. Um, interestingly enough, if you look through uh, post-World War II, this slogan even kind of creeps into some of the uh, some of the literature. And so they're kind of saying, listen, it's, it's uh, America's God-given right to have this land and to protect this land. And their um, definition of protect goes from... Um, defensive protection to offensive protection and that's kind of why um, America has land outside of America and this is kind of uh, politically debatable but whether it's Puerto Rico or Guam or uh, Hawaii and then it kind of extends from there like why do we have military bases outside of America well and so anyway I won't go too much into that but basically there is this um, seeping almost doctrine like God has given us this land, and we are a people that deserves this land. And so um, here's a time where people see there's the power of God, there's a divine foresight of God, and how can we use that to benefit ourselves? And that's kind of uh, what took place in, in America. And so, I mean, I'm from America. I love America, but we've done some weird things. So that's one example. Another example is the example of slavery. And I don't know if you have actually looked through uh, the process of the abolition of slavery. And there were a lot of Protestants back in the day who basically said, listen, the Bible is supportive of slavery. And so they're saying it is our God-given right to have this. And so they're completely manipulating and misusing um, scripture to meet their own personal needs. And so it's really interesting how the selfish desires of humanity tends to take the power of God and use it for selfish purposes. And that's kind of uh, what's taken place. And as I read through this story, I wonder if there are any modern-day applications to this. And uh, I remember talking to countless numbers of people, uh, and there's a relationship that hasn't worked out, and the, per- and the one person says to the other, you know, God just doesn't want this to, to work out. You know, this isn't God's will. And, you know, the question, the question that begs to be answered on the other person's mind is, how do you know? <laughs> like, God told me something different. <laughs> and so uh, there's almost this using God to fit personal needs. Or whenever there's a blessing that's to be sought or a purchase that is to be made, it's almost like, God, do you want me to have this? Because if you want me to have it, then it's definitely okay for me to have this. And the question is kind of like, there's so many ethical dilemmas in that question alone. And so it's very, it's a very human tendency to take the power of God and to use it for selfish motives. Now there's the flip side to that. In this very story, you've got Philip. And basically, Philip is somebody who doubts. And he's not really prone to misusing the power of God. He's kind of prone to not even expecting anything from God. And it's kind of like, whether it's doubt 
or whether it's uh, not wanting to expect anything because if you don't expect anything, well, you're not going to be disappointed. And so Philip is on the opposite side of that coin where he doesn't expect a thing. And so here is Jesus, and he's trying to reach out to both groups of people. He's trying to show them, I genuinely care about you. I want to meet your needs, and at the same time, I can't be forced into a specific pigeonholed view of who God is. And on the other hand, for those who do not believe, Jesus is saying, I want you to trust and depend and expect something from me. So here's my question for you, or my rhetorical question for you today. Which category do you see yourself fitting in? Do you see yourself fitting in the category of not expecting anything? Or do you see yourself fitting in the character, uh, category of, God, I want you to fit my personal uh, desires and needs? There's a second story that's followed through here. Jesus has just disappointed thousands of people. He has just disappointed the 12 disciples that were following him. And he commands them, Go over to the sea or go into your boat and go over the sea. In this story, if you follow with me from John chapter 6, verses 15 to 21, Jesus uh, is has prayed, spent the evening praying in the mountain. Uh, the, sun has, the sun has gone down. It's evening, and basically the disciples hop into the boat and they go onto the sea. Now, if you... Look at the geographical layout of uh, the Sea of Galilee. It's very unique. It has very high elevations uh, to the east and then to the west. It has relatively low uh, low elevation. And what this does is it changes the climate quite a bit. And so uh, when the day gets very hot and it switches to night, uh, the land is basically... Um, sucking the air out of the ocean and oftentimes it causes storms to take place in the Sea of Galilee. And so if you YouTube a uh, storm in the Sea of Galilee, there have been different, uh, different, uh, whether archaeologists or pastors who kind of film the Sea of Galilee and you get a picture of like the stormy weather. But anyway, it's very interesting. This, the weather hits very quickly and it hits very severely. And so you get a picture of, uh, or, or place the picture in your mind of the disciples rowing in the middle of the sea and um, basically, the storm hits. And I'm curious, how many of you grew up with uh, Arthur Maxwell um, Bible story books? All right, we see a couple hands. And whenever I see the picture, there's like this light that's shown on Jesus and the boat. And you're kind of like, and it's this light hue, and you can see the different characters. You see the 12 disciples. Uh, you see Peter trying to walk on water or sinking in the water, and you see Jesus. And um, I... I kind of, when I read through the story, I was like, you know, oftentimes I actually have the wrong picture of what's happening in the story. Um, so I don't know if that's something that you uh, that you normally think of when you think of this story, right? It's There's almost this light that's shining on Jesus. And if you see uh, where the light is and where the shadow is, there's like this light that's coming down this way, and then there's shadow here. But if it's dark and it's windy and there's a storm... There's zero light. Like, you can't see anything. And so you can imagine there's this dark figure that's walking towards his boat. There's a storm. And out of out of the midst of the storm, you hear this, don't be afraid. And it's kind of, for me, that would scare me even more because you can't see Jesus' face. You have no idea who it is. And so the Bible says that the disciples are rightfully very scared out of their mind and they think it's a ghost. Um and so, yeah, basically, this is not the right representation of, of what's happening on the sea. And in the notes, I, I have asked people, what do you picture? And I was like, well, this is probably what Galen pictures. But uh, anyway, Galen's not here. Um, so basically, 
you have uh, you have this picture of complete darkness. There's wind blowing. There's a storm, and 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 the disciples hear this voice um, come from the midst of the sea. And I don't know if you've ever actually gone to the ocean and tried to have a conversation with somebody while the wind is blowing. Anybody ever tried to do that? It's really hard to hear anything. Um, there was this one pastor who decided he wanted to baptize somebody um, here at, at the in the bay uh, here in Melbourne, and basically we were maybe twenty feet from him, and he had to go out to the water, and he's like yelling, and you can't hear a thing, and you almost hear this faint, "I now baptize you." And he's just screaming at the top of his <laughs> top of his lungs, and so basically, in order for the disciples to even hear Jesus in the midst of a storm. Jesus has to be right next to the boat in order to say, don't be afraid. And so that kind of gives you a picture as to how far Peter walked out and whatnot. So here's my point in bringing up this story. The disciples have just been uh, disappointed, and Jesus comes to them in the middle of the ocean. He's right next to the boat, and basically when he performs this miracle of walking on the water and allows Peter to come out towards him to walk on the water as well, Jesus is trying to communicate, I know that you're disappointed that I don't want to be your physical king. And at the same time, I want you to know that I am divine and I care about you. And Jesus could have met the disciples on the other side of the sea after the storm had passed. Like they were seasoned fishermen, they knew how to survive. And at the same time, Jesus comes to them in the middle of the storm and he calms the storm for them. Steps into the boat, the the storm goes away, and the text says that the disciples were like astonished. And they realized, truly, this is the Son of God. And so Jesus almost reinforces, listen, I know you're disappointed, but I want you to know, I want you to be safe. I want you to know I haven't rejected you, even though you feel rejected. And I want you to know I want to be with you, even if I can meet you on the other side of the other side of the sea. And so here, Jesus reinforces this kind of sense of love for his disciples, even if they don't get um, all of who he is. Now, here we come to the third part of um, this chapter. It goes from verse 22 to the end. Now, this is a massive portion of text. It's a massive portion of discourse and dialogue. And I'm just going to narrate through uh, through this. So, the people who have followed Jesus up until now, they're almost following him just for their miracles. Like, he's kind of like this awesome show that kind of goes through different parts of Judea. And basically, um, they're very curious, and Jesus wants to change this curiosity to commitment. He wants these people to commit their lives to him and to believe in him. And the discourse is how he does this. So if you look at verse um, 24, or excuse me, 27, Jesus has just said, um, I know that you're looking after me, Uh, that you've been looking for me. In 27, he says, Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to last everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal on him. And so Jesus says, Listen, I'm looking for commitment from you. I want you to labor for bread that will never uh, run out. Uh, Bread that will always fulfill your hungers, your need. Now, Jesus uses very similar language to the woman of Samaria in John chapter 4. So if you have time later on today, um, I encourage you to actually compare and contrast John chapter 4 and John chapter 6. So in John chapter 4, this Samaritan woman is... uh, 
going to the well to gather water. And Jesus says, listen, I have water that will completely wipe out your thirst. And this woman's response to Jesus is, give me some of this water. And so Jesus uses the exact same tactics. And he says, listen, I just fed 5,000 men with bread. Um, and I know you're looking for bread, but there is bread that will satisfy your hunger completely forever. And so he's trying to bait the people. And notice how the people respond in verse 28. They said to him, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? And so their response is not, what is this bread? Feed us with this bread. I remember um, when Michelle is like, oh, I know how to make macarons. It was like, feed us with this macarons, right? Like that is the immediate response. Like there's no, you don't have to think about it. And when you look at the response of the people, the re- response of the people isn't give us bread. The response is, how do we do m- miracles the same way that you perform miracles? And you see where their mind is. It has nothing to do with who is this amazing person. It has to do with how can we control his power? Now, if you look at John chapter 4 and the woman at the well, when Jesus says, there is water that will completely quench your thirst, she immediately asks, what is this water? Like, let me drink of it. Complete different response. So we move on. Verse 29, Jesus answers and says to them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he sent. And so he asks for trust. He asks for belief. He asks for them to believe in truth. And in verse 30, they say, what sign will you perform then? So it's almost like, have you ever had an argument with somebody and you're trying to get them to understand you, but they refuse to understand you? You're like, this is why I did what I did. And the other person is like, I don't care. How come you don't do X, Y, Z? And it's kind of like you're just at a crossroads. No matter what you say, they don't want to understand you. And then you can't get yourself to understand the other person as well. And it's just a crossroads. So the question is, what do you do? Jesus comes to the Jews and he's saying, listen, I, uh, he wants them to know I'm divine. I came from heaven. I want you to believe in me. And the people come to Jesus and they say, Jesus, Show us how to perform miracles or perform another miracle. And it's like they're just on two completely different wavelengths. There's this, um, there's this uh, academic article where an individual um, basically writes about, here, let me see. Uh, he writes about the relevance, excuse me. Uh, the relevance of trust for moral justification, the relevance of trust for moral uh, justification. And he breaks down um, different elements of trust. And one of basically the the thesis statement of um, this article is the individual says, every decision that we make, whether it's scientific, moral, or whatever it may be, is founded and grounded on trust. And the reason why is because in order to live life, we have all lived life, uh, made, made decisions, uh, practiced principles in our life that is based off of previous research and knowledge and content. And all of those principles, knowledge, content, uh, whatever it may be, it is impossible for each individual to prove every single thing that's been done in order to know that it's true. D- does that make sense? And so what you have to do is you have to trust that what somebody says is true and just accept it and put it put it into practice, if that makes sense. And so what you see is in academia, you have different research that's been done, and one scientist quotes another scientist, even if that scientist has not done all of the experiments that the previous scientist has done, because it's a waste of time. 
So what the second, what the first scientist can do, he can benefit from the second scientist and basically, yeah, just read the research and say, this has happened. And then build his kind of thesis from that. So, so it is with truth where Jesus says, listen, there is experience, there's perspective, there's the capacity to know that I have that you do not have. And so I'm asking you to take that leap of trust. And this is how Jesus does this. If you look at verse 37, it says, all that the father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. And so this is John chapter 6, verse 37. Jesus' response to the stubbornness of his followers is simply, listen, whoever is going to believe me is going to believe me because God the Father has given that person to me. Now, that is such a random response to Jesus trying to reach out. Because when I usually think of Jesus reaching out to people, uh, basically it's Jesus does everything that he possibly can to um, just guide that person along. But here he almost draws the line in the sand and says, whoever moves is going to move, and whoever doesn't move is not going to move. Very, very weird response. If you move on to verse 44, this is repeated. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. So same thing. He's almost like, whoever God draws to me will be drawn to me, and that's it. Here's some other guidelines that Jesus gives. Verse 51. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever, and the bread I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. This is repeated again in verse 56. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. And so Jesus' response is, one, whoever believes is going to believe. Two, He's saying, if you really want to find out who I am, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood, which almost sounds cannibalistic. But in scripture, this reference is often um, in context to reading scripture. And so Jesus is saying, eating my flesh is like eating bread, which is like eating the word of God. And so he's saying, for those of you who really want to know, search the scriptures as if it's nourishment to your soul. And so he's saying, Read through scripture, learn about it, and digest it, eat it, internalize it. And so it's almost like he's saying, listen, even if you can't trust me right now, search the scriptures, and little bit by little bit, you will learn of who I am and how I operate. Now, when Jesus asks his followers to believe in him, that first term, or that first definition right here, it's basically... He's saying there are some guidelines that will reveal who I am. And the guidelines that he lays out in John chapter 6, he says, the first guideline, I come from heaven. He's trying to um, convince the people, I am divine. Like, I'm not a normal person. I'm not just a teacher. I'm not just a prophet. I am divine. I'm from, I'm from heaven. I'm, I am God. That's basically what he's saying. And the second guideline that he gives is, he says, Eat my flesh like it's like it's bread. In other words, internalize my teachings, search my teachings. And he's saying that that little bit by bit process where you learn something new about God, you internalize it. It's almost like a bridge building exercise, something that teaches you how to trust God. There's something that God asks you to do that you're normally not used to doing, and it's like 
taking that first step. God, I'm taking this first step. What's going to happen? And in that process, you learn about who God is. And so Jesus says, take that step-by-step process. Eat bread. Learn of who I am. Finally, if you follow me to verse 62, or excuse me, to verse um, 64. Jesus says, um, sorry, 63. It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. And this is kind of the end of his discourse. He basically says, eat bread or eat my words, eat who I am, my, uh, what makes me who I am. He says, I'm from heaven. And then he basically gives this random, almost mysterious reference to the Holy Spirit. And that's Jesus's answer for how he wants to build trust with people who do not believe in him. Now, I have a question. If you're about to make a major decision in your life, oh, like something like you're going to commit your, the rest of your life to another individual, and that person is trying to convince you of commitment, what kind of things do you look for before you're ready to make that commitment? Now, think of Jesus' response. Basically, his response is, if you're going to do it, you're going to do it. If you're not, you're not. Oh, and here, here are my teachings, here are my words. Go learn this. And basically, he's like, all right, well, here's a vague reference to the Holy Spirit. All right, who's going to commit now? Like, can, you, can you imagine somebody saying something similar to that and saying, okay, now will you marry me? Like, would you commit your life, the rest of your life to that individual? It's, it's almost so, there's too much of a gap like, in scientific terms, they would call it a, an, uh, hold on here, an epistemic distance, right, that cannot be filled. It's like this knowledge gap that basically hasn't been filled. And to truly trust is to take a certain leap. And it's almost like Jesus is saying, I'm, I'm giving you some vague guidelines, and at the same time, you have to take that leap. You have to take that leap. And here's my question, and and that's basically the end of the chapter. And the end result is many people leave him at that time, which is would seem understandable. And at the same time, there are 12 followers who decide, we have nothing else to go back to. You have the words of life. We're following you. We're committing our lives to you. And so basically, Jesus gives guidelines. He says, there's this gap. Who's in? Now, I thought for a moment, why doesn't Jesus just formulate... uh, truth so that it's logical why doesn't he formulate truth so that it's provable and then people would just follow i mean i figured that's what people are looking for that's what i look for if i read something that's challenging in scripture and it goes against what i believe in i'm not likely to drop what i believe in just because something challenges me and so the question is why that gap i think that jesus cannot formulate what it means to be fully convinced of his nature and his origin, because the desire for complete security will not result in what is sought after. And here's what I mean. The root of seeking for, uh, there is a reasonable amount of evidence that should be given whenever somebody makes a decision. But you cannot completely rule out every single factor ever in any kind of decision that you make. It is impossible. So on the flip side of that, the root for desiring security, 
uh, one of the, I shouldn't say the root as in complete, because this isn't for everybody, but there are times when, at least for myself, if I'm seeking for complete security, it's rooted in insecurity, if that makes sense. And when I say, well, what about this? And the person answers, then the next response is, well, then what about this? And then the next response is given, well, what about this? And it is impossible to answer every single question if it's rooted in insecurity. Are you familiar with that um, that Yoda quote? It's like, Yoda's like, mm. <laughs> and he's talking to, I think it's Anakin, and he's like, um, he's like, I sense fear in you. Fear leads to hatred or anger and anger to hatred and hatred, the dark side. <laughs> You're familiar with that quote? And it's there's a degree of truth in that quote in that insecurity is rooted in fear. And when fear plays itself out, it is not uh, – you don't end up with the principles and the life that God desires us to have. And so Jesus almost says there is – this gap, and you almost have to jump into that gap, and that is where you find me. And he can't formulate how, how he's going to build trust in every single person because we all live different lives. We all live different lives. We all have different experiences, but God wants to give us specific experiences of security with himself. And so you can't prove every single little thing to build trust in God, but and explain every single thing about God, but you can experience the results of that relationship with God, if that makes sense. I can't explain everything about electricity, but I know that if I switch that light switch on, the light's going to turn on. I can benefit from electricity even if I can't explain every single property of electricity. And that's what Jesus says. He says, listen, here's my truth. Learn of me, experience me, and that's how you will know that you can trust me. It's one of the most unpopular things to take that leap of faith. And many people say Christianity is about blind faith. And to a certain degree, it's true. There is a bit of faith. There is a leap that has to be taken. But the difference is when you do take the leap, you can quantify the experience, the result of God, even if you can't explain what happens before that leap. And Jesus says, take it. Trust me. And it's in that place of vulnerability that we find our strength in Jesus. And that's kind of the message of John chapter 6, to build trust, to build trust. And that will lead to belief. Um, there's this story of a guy named Chris Pico. I'm curious, have, have you guys heard the story of Chris Pico over the last two weeks? There's this uh, gentleman who um, had been married to his wife for a number of years, and they decided to have um, their first baby. And so they tried, and what happened is uh, week number 26, his wife had uh, complications, and um, she had to be rushed to the hospital. And while she was in the hospital, she fell asleep, and she died while she was sleeping. So I'm not sure exactly what all the complications are, but she got rushed to the hospital, she was pregnant, and she died. And so what they had to do is they had to have an emergency cesarean, and they um, uh, open, opened her womb and pulled out this 26-week-old uh, child. And uh, the baby's name is Lennon. And what happened is, um, so for four days, they, were, they weren't sure if the baby was going to make it. And on the fourth day, the baby died as well. And so obviously, uh, so this took place in America and obviously, um, 
medical bills are very expensive, funerals are very expensive. And what happened is during that four days, Chris Pico, um, basically his wife told him before she passed away, hey, uh, each time you sing and play your guitar, the baby moves inside of the womb. Like the baby loves it when you, when you sing. And so, uh, when the baby's in the hospital, can you, can you sing the baby a song? And so, uh, Chris Pico took his guitar and he sung, uh, Blackbird by the Beatles to this, uh, to this premature baby. And, uh, basically it went on YouTube and the video went viral. And, uh, I think it had like, like 12 million views in the first five days or something like that. And people started pouring in donations to, uh, this poor guy who lost his whole family in a matter of one week. And so, um, the, the amazing thing about the story is that uh, Chris Pico is actually Seventh-day Adventist, and um, tons of different news p- uh, people have been covering the story, and uh, he goes to, he's the worship leader at, at Loma Linda Seventh-day Adventist Church, and um, at the memorial service, he basically gives this, um, uh, this message to the people uh, that, that are at the memorial service. And what I want to do in closing is just show you a clip of, of what he says to people as he's going through this traumatic experience. And the reason why I bring this up is this is one example of somebody who does not have the answers uh, to the questions that he has. He has no explanation as to why he lost his wife. He has no explanation as to why he's lost his son. And basically... Um, he gives this powerful testimony of of the God that he believes in, and so I just want to show this short five minute clip of of his uh, of his, of the memorial service and of his speech, and then for a song of reflection, there's a song that he sings afterwards, and um, I thought we would kind of watch that together. So here's um, the song. There's a couple of things I want, and that's. Uh very short, very short list of things that I want. I want us to ask the questions. I want, I want us to feel comfortable asking the questions. There's no wrong question. I have a lot of questions. People have been coming to me for answers that I don't. <laughs> but I want the when all the questions are, are, have passed, I want the theme and I want the focus and I want each and every one of you to join me in asking the question, what now? To me, that's the most important question and I think that's the question that Ashley would ask. What now? As we remember, as we look back, what does that mean for my life now? What does that change about who I am now? What does that mean for how I reach out to other people who I see suffering? What now? And I think that's the question we need to ask. So when you're ready to ask that question... Let's dream together. Let's, let's see what we can do. Let's see how we can live better lives. Let's see how we can love more.
There have been so many people that have reached out and shared their pain, deep, excruciating pain, uh, tremendous loss, and my heart just goes out. So what now? What do I do? What do we do? One of the themes of our relationship for me and Ashley, as it's been said, that we met as a result of a tragic, tragic event, um, unspeakable, unspeakable tragedy. That's how we met. And so something good came from something so tragic. So from this unspeakable tragedy, that's what I want. I want good to come out of this. So many voices out there that have reached out to me didn't have the support, didn't have the random viral video, didn't have didn't have this opportunity, didn't have this momentum. And so for whatever reason, we have this. And so what now? What good can we bring out of this? To this broken world, what good can we bring out of this? I know that God did not compose this. This was, this was not, God had nothing to do with this. But I can see him tears streaming down his face, beginning to compose one note at a time the most beautiful melody that anyone has ever heard. And I don't know what that sounds like, but that's the God that I believe in. The title of the sermon was, uh, God Does Not Trust Everyone. Um, there's this special relationship that God desires to have and he offers this relationship to us when he says, believe in me or trust in me. There's this random verse in John chapter 2 where it says that um, basically he's just performed miracles and people have gone after him. And in John chapter 2 at the end of the verse it says, Jesus did not commit, and then that Greek word is pisteo, the same one that we were talking about. He did not commit himself to man because he knew what was in man. And it's kind of interesting because I think of God as this hugely uh, benevolent being, which I believe he is. 
And at the same time, usually we almost think of that relationship as like almost like an easy, God will always completely uh, give himself to us. And at the same time in this story, it's like Jesus is saying, yes, I wish goodwill on everybody. I send sun and the rain to the just and the unjust. And at the same time, he wants this deeper, intimate relationship with us where it requires trust. And here it says that Jesus specifically does not commit himself to a certain group of people. And that's so foreign because there's a deeper level that God desires to have. And yeah, it requires that leap. And so... um Whatever situation that you might be going in today where I, I want to ask the question, have you felt God tugging on your heart asking you to trust him, to take that leap, to take that step, to believe? Um, and with complete understanding, it requires a degree of difficulty. Uh, actually, it's very, very difficult. Um, and so while you're thinking about that question, um, we'll play the the... Uh, song of uh, response. This is my father's world. And to my listening ears All nature sings And round me rings The music of the spheres my father's world The birds their carol space The morning light The lily white Declare their maker's praise This is my so strong God is the
together. Father God, we come before you today and we know that you desire a deeper, special, unique relationship with us, that you desire us to trust in you and you in turn commit yourself to us. And Father, I want to pray that for each individual in this room that we would be able to have that experience, that we would truly learn to believe and uh, may we find security and rest and peace for our souls. We pray this in your name. Amen.